millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, folks. Welcome to Naval Month on the Napoleon Assist, as voted for by my Patreon supporters. I've got a quick favour to ask. If you enjoy the episode... Drop a like, subscribe, and how about sharing or leaving a review? It'll take you a few seconds, but it makes a huge difference in helping to reach a wider audience. As ever, if you're interested in going even further to support the podcast, check out the links in in the description to discover how you can become a supporter, the perks that are involved, and how you can leave a one-off tip. Thank you all for your incredible support as we close in on 75,000 downloads and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleon Assist as we continue with Naval Month. Today we are looking at the War of 1812 from a specifically naval perspective. I am joined by Nick Kaiser who is the author of Revenge in the Name of Honour the Royal Navy's quest for vengeance in the single ship actions of the War of 1812. He's a history teacher by profession, uh, hailing from Canada, and has written a very well-received, I have to say, book on this whole kind of naval aspect that I think has generally been overlooked. So today, how better than to uh, spend an hour digging into that and unpicking some of the misconceptions that we have. Nick, welcome to the Napoleonuses. Great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and thank you. Nothing delights Canadian more than to talk to British people about something that Britons ignore about Canadian history. Well, we, we do like to just kind of brush any bits that we don't like under the carpet, which I suspect is, is where we're kind of going to go with a lot of this discussion. So when it comes to the War of 1812, I think it's important, particularly, you know, it's Naval Month, to, to talk about the origins of the conflict, because this is a war that is kind of naval in its origins, talking about kind of maritime commerce and also manpower, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are a few non-naval um, factors in why the war breaks out. The fact that, you know, the Canadian colonies are still under British control and issues around British um, treaties with native allies and that kind of thing. But the real um, 
the core issues are naval related, as, as you say, maritime related. So the first is in the, in the context of Napoleonic Wars, you know, Britain is enforcing a blockade of continental Europe. And in 1807, they issue the Orders in Council, which are the infamous orders that really spark this conflict. Um, essentially what the orders do is they allow the Royal Navy to enforce the blockade of continental Europe, uh, so France and its allies and forest allies, and it forbids British merchants and allied merchants from trading with continental Europe, but also forbids neutral countries from doing so. So it gives the Royal Navy the power to stop American ships from trying to trade goods in and out of Europe. And this is hugely insulting to the American government. And now why did Britain do this? Because this is, you know, America was not an ally of the UK. They were not involved in the war. But Britain didn't really treat the American government with really any respect. They didn't really learn a lesson after the American Revolution. Um, they didn't really view the American Republic as a proper sovereign state. They viewed it as something kind of below. And Americans over the last couple of decades since independence had, they had a lot of complaints about British statesmen, you know, coming over and treating them as almost like a vassal country, you know, despite the fact that they had won independence. And the second major reason was about impressment. So that's a form of conscription that the UK practiced to supply the Royal Navy. So as I'm sure you mentioned on your podcast before, Britain is unique in Europe that it doesn't have conscription to man uh, its army. It's a volunteer army, but the Navy is run by conscription. There are lots of volunteers for the Royal Navy, but not nearly enough to supply the manpower needed to man that massive fleet. So under British law, any British subject who has some experience as a sailor at sea uh, is liable to be impressed into uh, the British Navy. Um, some popular culture seems to suggest that anyone at all can be impressed, but it, it was supposed to be anyone who was a British subject who had sea experience. Now the problem for Americans is twofold. One is that at the time, a lot of Americans sounded like they were from Britain. You know, the accents today are quite distinct, as listeners can tell, listening to me and to you speak, um, but the accents would have been much similar, more similar at the time, because they would have started off in the 1600s as being identical. So they sounded a lot alike, so it was hard to tell them apart. And the second, uh, and so it's the same language as well, the second problem was that many American sailors in, in Navy ships and merchant ships had been born in the United Kingdom were born in British colonies in Canada. And there was a fundamental conflict between the two countries' understanding of citizenship or subject. So American citizenship as a new concept is something that could be earned and or revoked. Uh, so someone who left Britain or Canada or Nova Scotia and moved to America, joined its merchant service or its naval service, they could earn American citizenship. And it was a much less arduous process to get that than it is today. It was very easy to get American citizenship back at the time because they wanted more immigrants to come to the country. And then Americans who got their citizenship could then revoke the, the status of a British subject or like uh, Prussian citizenship, French citizenship, whatever they wanted. Under British law, however, a British subject, someone born a British subject, born in Canada, Nova Scotia, Britain, Ireland, they remain a British subject for life. It wasn't something you could revoke. If you're a subject of the king, you stay a subject of the king. So anyone who had been born outside of America, born in a British colony, born in Britain, who worked on an American ship in, under British law was liable to be impressed. And so as a result of the orders in council that allowed the Royal Navy to stop American ships routinely, 
and the general British attitude towards the United States, Royal Navy ships often did stop American ships and often did impress people with American papers into the Royal Navy. Um, basing the 20, year, um, 20 years leading up to the War of 1812, some 10,000 American subjects, or citizens anyway, were impressed into the Royal Navy. Of those, 3,000 were later released. They were able to prove that they were not British subjects, but that still left 10 or 7,000 who were forced into British service and in their view, uh, unjustly. This results in two major incidents. The first is in 1807, the same year that the Orders in Council were issued, when HMS Leopard, which was a small, old, obsolete 50-gun ship of a line, stops a U.S. warship, USS Chesapeake, while hunting for specific British deserters who they suspected were on board Chesapeake. And in the process, Leopard actually fires on Chesapeake, causes a huge scandal. And it does result in a brief rapprochement between the two countries, which does not last long. Um, by early 1812, before the war breaks out, another instance occurs. HMS Guerriere, so a British 38-gun um, uh, frigate, stops a small American warship, the sloop, and impresses an American sailor from Maine out of her. And this causes a huge scandal in America. And it results in the Secretary of the Navy, uh, Hamilton, ordering USS President, so one of America's heavy frigates, which we'll talk more about later, uh, sails out to look for Guerriere. Not quite sure what they wanted to do when they caught her, because America and Britain were not at war, but she pursues her nonetheless. She doesn't find Guerriere, but instead she chances upon a smaller ship, uh, HMS Little Belt, just a you know 20 gun ship war. And we're not quite sure what happens next because the accounts are conflicting, but they end up engaged in action. They end up firing on each other. And Little Belt being tiny is basically smashed to pieces. Um, and it was in this, in, in this case, the British who were outraged by what had happened because they saw a American frigate unjustly attacking a British small soup of war. So when the war does break out in 1812, Guerriere, the ship that president had been searching for, uh, decides to have the phrase, not the little belt painted onto her topsail. So when she goes into action for the first time in a war, she has that plastered on her topsail for all to see as a coax to the Americans it's a, the first thing I want to say is that I'm very impressed with how you kept on going with that whilst your cat was climbing all over you. <laughs> and then once it got your attention, as cats do, went on board of this and then jumped off. Uh, so that was deeply impressive um, because we managed to do that in a single take as your cat was going, pay attention to me. Um, so congratulations there. Um, I'd, I'd like that we're, we're being brutally honest about how much the British were let's be frank asses when it mm -hmm. came to this and I spend a lot of time um, bashing Napoleon on this podcast um, for reasons that we won't go into today because mm -hmm. I've bored people to death with that but I have always said you know Britain is by no means an angel during this period and this is a classic example of that I do also quite like the kind of the the sarkiness of that you know not <laughs> not the ship that you went and smashed to pieces um so, I encourage um, your, your listeners, if they ever want to, look into slogans in this conflict. There are a ton of examples of ships and sailors having putting slogans on sails and flags. It's, it was such a nationalistic conflict. Um, I think the result of the two countries speaking the same language, having the same culture and history, made them especially angry with each other. 
So these, these slogans were very common. I encourage people to look into this. You've got to tell us more now. All right. So one example was the Battle of Valparaiso, which was in 1814. So this was a weird situation because there was an American ship uh, anchored in a Spanish-American port uh, on the Pacific coast of what's now Chile. So it was a neutral port in the war. Spain was allied to Britain in the Napoleonic War at the time, but was not an ally of the British against the Americans. So a British ship that's pursuing this um, uh, American ship, Essex, does arrive, but she can't engage Essex in the port. So the two ships anchor near each other and resort to essentially taunting each other for about two weeks. They, they, sing, they sing songs, they chant at each other, you know, God save the king, free trade and sailors' rights. They throw all these back and forth. One midshipman on um, the British ship Phoebe actually writes um, an angry poem and sends it to the Americans. The American crew on the ship basically write a letter to the British crew encouraging them to rise up against their oppressive British overlords and join them. And this continues on again for, for two weeks because neither side can actually engage each other officially. There are also many accounts, and I don't know how many are real and how many are fabrications, but um, American papers keep reporting uh, challenges. So between uh, one American captain or one British captain basically calling on another nearby ship to come out and fight them. Um, a good example would be James Yeo, a British captain of HMS Southampton. Uh, he later goes on to command uh, the British war effort on the Great Lakes, but at this time he's commanding one frigate uh, in the Atlantic. And a report, which might not be real, but it was maybe falsified by an American paper, uh, has him challenging the captain of USS Essex, um, much earlier in the war, to come out and, and fight him for a perceived slight. And there are a few more of these. There's a reported account of Guerriere's captain issuing another um, challenge. Again, they're all very patriotic. They're usually pretty insulting um, in a sly way, sort of impinging on honor and that kind of thing. And they litter the papers of the um, American coast. That's fascinating, the way in which this war kind of ends up getting waged, almost in the papers, from what you're saying, mm -hmm. in the way that it's reported as well. And that taps into something that I wanted to, to talk about, which is kind of cultures within the Navy. And initially, when I was writing this, I was thinking kind of with that post-Trafalgar effect. You know, we, we've talked in the past about the post-Waterloo effect, but there is an equivalent, arguably, when it comes to Trafalgar. So to what extent are officers kind of resting on their laurels as a result of that and kind of in expecting to inflict crushing defeats on the fledgling US Navy when the war breaks out? So I'll, I'll give you three uh, slogans or phrases used to describe the Navy at the time, which are often used as book titles today. Habit of victory, sovereign of the seas, which is a quite old one, but still in use and Spell of Invincibility, now is used by uh, George Canning, who was um, a member of House Commons at this time, later would become the Prime Minister. Um, the Royal Navy's culture was defined by extreme confidence and extreme competitiveness. Competitive because there were usually twice as many officers or roles for them. So you had to be incredibly competitive um, and have a really good reputation in order to just get a job later in the war. And the Navy had 20 years of essentially constant victory to look back on by this point in 1812. Again, the last major battle was Trafalgar. There have been many minor battles since then. Um, Trafalgar, of course, is the one 
most people know about, and it was one of the few really big fleet actions. All of them in this conflict were British victories. And that had never really happened before in British history. In the American Revolutionary War, they won some big fleet actions like the Battle of the Saints, but they lost the Battle of the Chesapeake. And that Chesapeake is largely the reason that um, Washington's able to defeat Cornwallis' army uh, near the end of the war at Yorktown. And so beyond all the fleet actions that the British win, they win almost every minor battle from single ship actions to small squadrons. And it's, it leaves the British the impression that they are invincible. And it leaves the public with the impression that the Royal Navy has this spell of invincibility. So when the War of 1812 breaks out, you know, we'll think about the context. The last major battle was um, 1805, Trafalgar. It's been nearly uh, 10 years later. There have not been many major battles since, and especially for the officers serving in North America. The last French outpost in North America, St. Pierre and Miquelon, which are still French islands today off the coast of Newfoundland, they had been raised to the ground you know, almost 20 years before. So there's no real war in the area. There's the odd privateer, Spanish or French, who arrive in Nova Scotian waters or American waters. There's no war there. So the officers, they are bored. They have nothing really to do. And as tensions are rising with America and war breaks out, suddenly they become really excited because they see a brief chance, but a chance at some kind of action. Because the American uh, Navy, it's very small. It's only about 25-ish warships. But they know that the American Navy is uh, eager for action as well. So the British and see a chance at something happening. Battles. And many British captains, they're writing back in, in their journals and their letters home, and they're saying, um, well, here's our chance. Here's my chance to make a name for myself, like Nelson made a name for himself, or Captain Edward Pell made a name for himself. One captain in particular, Phil Broke, who commands HMS Shannon, uh, he actually writes in a letter to his wife uh, just before the war breaks out, when it's expected it's going to. Um, he says that he expects a very short period but a very busy period of what he called glorious frantic activity, uh, which would then return to an autonomous boredom of blockade. But he sees this rare moment of glory, essentially. And no one's expecting anything major from the US Navy. They expect they'll come out and fight, they'll be defeated, and they'll run home. Uh, and no one expects this more than the American government. They have no confidence in their Navy at all. They, they underfund it. They didn't really want a Navy to begin with. Um, it's just a handful of Ferguson sloops. It was vastly outnumbered by the British North American squadron, uh, which operated out, out of um, Halifax and Bermuda. So they expect American Navy uh, will be uh, defeated, overrun, sent back home. By contrast, everyone expects that the American army is going to overrun the poorly defended uh, Canada's upper and lower Canada, that they'll be taken very quickly. By the end of the War of 1812, however, Two American invasions have been repulsed from Upper Canada. So Canada remains in British hands. American army's been defeated, but the British and the uh, American Navy's only engaged five single ship actions uh, in the first you know, half year of the war. And all five are British defeats. And so it's the British who are completely humbled at sea, whereas the Americans are triumphant at sea. It's a staggering kind of reversal of the mm -hmm. situation, isn't it? And and stands in such marked contrast to, as you say, what everyone was expecting, particularly off the back of the American War of Independence. 
let's start digging into these kind of slices of humble pie that the Americans hand out over the course of this conflict and start with the Guerriere, which you've mentioned already, and the USS Constitution. What goes wrong for the Guerriere's commander during that engagement? And, and conversely, what goes right on the American side? So first, just a bit of context for um, your listeners. So Guerriere was a French-built, relatively young, um, uh, fifth-rate frigate. So she was rated at 38 guns. She actually carried about 48 guns, which is a whole thing I won't even get into, but uh, rated 38, carried about 48 guns, and her main battery consisted of 18 pounders, which just means that the shot fired by the guns weighed 18 pounds. Um, so... In August 1812, again, she was relatively young, but she was actually on her way back to Halifax in August 1812 after um, several um, attempts at bringing about action, several chases at sea in the early phase of the war. And she's commanded by uh, a pretty competent captain, James DePrez, uh, who came from a long line of naval officers. His, his father was an admiral, his uncle was in the Navy, his brother was in the Navy, his grandfather was an admiral. So he had a pretty long, like, you know, personal family history of this profession. Constitution, by contrast, was an entirely different beast. She was rated as a 44-gun frigate. She actually carried 56, uh, and she had a main battery of 24-pounder guns. So uh, much, he much heavier guns and much longer guns. Um, very few frigates at the time carried guns of this caliber. They're usually only carried on the battleship, the ships of the line. Her captain, Isaac Hall, was also very experienced. He was incidentally a cousin of the um, American general who lost the first invasion of Canada in the war. Um, now, so Hall, he had a very well-trained crew. They're all volunteers, very uh, superbly trained. And he, of course, had a much larger, better armed ship. So as the first, well, the two advantages, disadvantages Guerrier had. Smaller crew, overall, they're less experienced than the Americans. Uh, a good portion of them were impressed either in Halifax or back in England when she would have left to deploy to uh, North America. And she had the less powerful main battery, which had a shorter range. So, by, so just the, the broadside weight of Guerriere, so the weight of all the shot on one broadside put together uh, for Guerriere was 528 pounds. Constitutions was 754 pounds. So basically a 50% advantage. As a result of both the firepower and range's, range's advantage, uh, Constitution was able to inflict significant damage on her from the first couple hours of the action. So she's able to knock away spars and lines and eventually her mizzen, uh, her mizzen mass. And that left Guerrier basically unable to properly maneuver and allowed Constitution to get in front of her, to rake her from the front, get behind her, rake her from the back. And that's a problem for ships. At, of war at the time, because all of our weapons essentially are along the sides. They're vulnerable from the stern and bow. It's called raking. So she loses her mizzen, and then in quick succession, she loses her main and foremast. And she is left, as her captain later puts it, an unmanageable lock. And at that point, Constitution uh, breaks off the action. It's been a few hours of fighting. And Constitution breaks off, make her own repairs, and the British officers gather on the quarterdeck and they try to decide what to do next. And they decide that if Constitution tries to get close to board, they're going to try and repel the boarding and then board Constitution in turn. That's their, that's their hope. 
if Constitution goes to try and rake them, and because and now they're unable to move her, there's nothing to do to counter it, they're going to surrender. There's nothing else they can do at that point. Constitution, of course, does not try to board. She, they recognize the advantage they have. They sail to rake the Guerriere, and Guerriere surrenders. Just staggering. I mean, what is also kind of going through my mind is that this is potentially what inspires the opening action in Master and Commander, for those who haven't seen the film, because there's a lot of what you're talking about here that kind of correlates in terms of the, the disparity between the two ships that, that feature in the film. What gets me is why would you pick this fight if you're the British? Is, is there just kind of a fundamental intelligence failure that's going on here because this isn't an isolated incident is it you know this this keeps happening so is it just that you know that intelligence is gathered but it doesn't trickle down so you know or, or is this supreme overconfidence that you know you you're facing a, a ship with much better firepower a much more effective range and yet, you know, because it's the Royal Navy, the captain of the Guerrier is thinking, well, it's, it's going to be fine with the Royal Navy. We can, we can take this. Mm -hmm. So regarding intelligence, there is no, there's no intelligence failure, actually, which is the most interesting fact that I just one of the interesting facts I discovered in doing this research. Um, this is a bit of context for um, listeners, because I, I grew up loving British naval history. You know, I'm from Halifax, the British Royal Navy's base in North America. Um, and so I, I had grown up reading, you know, all the classic works on the stuff. And a consistent theme is that when the War of 1812 is discussed in British history, but the, the Navy is usually dismissed. And especially these actions, the Guerrier's loss and some of the other losses, they really just highlight the disparity in force and move on. That's what the historians do. And I, I chanced upon the letter of Captain James de Cres, the, the commander of Guerrier, not the letter, sorry, the court martial defense. So when he had his court martial to defend his loss of the ship, he gives his testimony. And he, he says to the court, um, the disparity in forcing the two ships, so like the firepower, no factor. It wasn't an issue. I lost because of bad luck. That's why I lost. I lost because Constitution was able to knock away certain lines and spires and the mizzen mast early enough in the action, I was unable to respond. He's pretty clear about that. And he goes on to say that he would welcome the opportunity with the same crew, same officers, and a ship like Guerriere to engage Constitution once again. And that demonstrated to me, and I, I learned more about this, the British at the time, when the War of 1812 breaks out, they're aware of, of, the, of what the American heavy frigates are. They're aware of that the Americans have built these very large heavy frigates, 24 pounder guns, very strong um, hulls, but they don't actually think they're a problem. And they don't think they're a problem because of Britain's experience with heavy frigates in the war so far. So in the 1790s, um, both the, Amer uh, the British story and the French begin building larger frigates. Frigates have been growing in size over the course of the 18th century. Um, they had first been armed mostly with nine pounder guns, then eight, uh, 12 pounders and 18 pounders have become a standard by this time. So in the 1790s, the French began building ships with 24-pounder guns, are uh, rated 40 or 44 guns, and the British do the same. But the first 10 years of the American Re or the French Revolutionary War, sorry, um, the 
French heavy frigates don't really give the French Navy any advantage. In fact, one of those French heavy frigates is defeated by a smaller frigate. So the lesson that the British learn is that these heavy frigates, they are um, you know, ships like Endymion, which is purpose-built, ships like Indefatigable, which is of uh, note for Hornblower fans. Um, these ships are expensive to build, expensive to maintain, and they don't actually give you any advantage. In the British experience, an 18-pounder frigate is able to handle any upper frigate, even if they're armed with 24-pounder guns. And it's proved by experience. So the, uh, the British Admiralty is well aware that the Americans have built these three specific heavy frigates, Constitution, um, United States, and President. And they've been built by a Navy that knows it's never going to get the funding necessary to build ships of the line. So they have to build, in their view, ships that are basically can overpower any frigate afloat, but run for many ships of the line. Because the American Navy is never going to get that funding, in their view. The British know this. Indeed, some British captains have toured these ships. Uh, one of them was Captain John Carden, who was the captain of USS Macedonian. Macedonian is actually the second frigate to lose one of these signature actions, USS United States. Early in 1812, John Carden is visiting America, and he happens to meet the captain of USS United States. And they meet, and they talk, and they talk about each other's frigates. They have dinner together. And Carden begins to lecture this American captain. And he tells them, you know, we learned the lesson, you know, not long ago that these big 24 pounder gun frigates are not really worth the expense. You're going to learn that yourself too. Don't worry. You're eventually going to have a, you know, a faster, swifter 18 pounder frigate like I have. And then later that year, Macedonian Cardin ship is defeated and captured by USS United States. So is there a common trait here? Because, you know, as you say, the... There, there is a logic to the British position, right, which is if you're more manoeuvrable, you can manoeuvre your ship into a position where, as you were talking about earlier, you can rake the other ship uh, and that advantage potentially outweighs, you know, the additional firepower. So, I mean, this is the ongoing kind of discussion of the period, isn't it? Do you favour speed or do you favour firepower? Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This keeps happening to the British. You know, they, you said to yourself, you know, there are, there are five of these actions and they all go the American way. So is there a common trait? Because I, I don't personally buy the luck defence. It's a very robust um, kind of defence that you would perhaps expect from somebody who's defending their reputation, saying, no, it's not the Royal Navy that's the problem. We just got unlucky. 
it's it's quite an impressive defense actually for mm. somebody who spends a lot of time reading army court marshals but I, I don't buy it and i'm sure the listeners aren't buying it so mm-hmm. is there a common trait here so i think especially with we're talking about citizenship actions of this period there there can be there are two categories i can divide the, the losses into because there are two very different kinds there are the losses between heavy frigates and the fifth rate frigates so Guerriere, Macedonian, and Java is the third one against Constitution um, and United States. Constitution actually takes two ships in the war, uh, Macedonian, or Guerriere and Java. Those fights are all down to disparity firepower, in, in my view. As much as the Royal Navy officers refused to believe it, they were, they were, not, they were not the French heavy frigates that they expected. They were more powerful. They were much better commanded and, and manned. And, you know, Guerriere, Macedonian, Java, they really didn't stand a chance. Now, Java, in her action in December, she actually does put up a pretty good fight. And she's able to, for the first couple of hours, outmaneuver Constitution. Uh, almost begins to prove the British um, rule that if you're more maneuverable, you can win. Unfortunately, Java, her bow spritz, the mass and very um, bow of a ship, um, that's like, goes out from the front. It is damaged. And so as um, Java tries to attack through the wind, her head soles are gone. She's unable to attack. And Constance is able to steal the weather gauge from her. And from there, Java is you know, battered into submission like to um, two companions over the war. So those losses are due to a disparity in force, disparity in firepower. But there's still other uh, defeats. There's two in 1812, and there are a few more throughout the rest of the war. And these are between British sloops of war and American sloops of war of essentially equal firepower. They're all basically 16 or 18 gunships, usually the exact same armament in many of these cases. So very, and these are British defeats. You can't explain them as uh, you know, superior American uh, firepower. And in this case, you actually have to explain them um, by superior American gunnery, superior American seamanship over or contrast with a pretty poor quality control in some British ships. The British Royal Navy at the time is very superbly um, manned, crewed, and officered, but there's a problem of quality control. And the War of 1812 is actually a really good um, case study in that because you see some ships. Uh, HMS Shannon under Philip Broke, HMS Endymion under Captain Henry Hope. Um, these two frigates that fight in the war, they are probably among the best, um, best captain, best officer, and best crewed ships in the fleet. But there are some ships like HMS Epervier, which are probably the most abysmally commanded ships in the fleet. Um, Epervier is a good example because, I mean, everything that could have gone wrong in her career at sea went wrong. So she had been in the North American squadron for some time before the war. Um, she was under the pretty, I mean, pretty incompetent, but well-connected Captain Richard Wales. His um, uncle was the North American squadron's uh, commander in chief. Her highlight of her career um, before her engagement with USS Peacock in 1814 was sinking at her moorings in Halifax. So during a storm, she's due to a lightning strike, springs a leak, sinks in a pretty shallow part of the harbor. So very able to raise her up again. Um, but she had been underwater for some time. All her, her guns and equipment have been submerged. 
And the British captain makes no attempt to check if the equipment is free of rust and decay. So she goes into action with uh, Peacock, another American sloop of war, and the fastening bolts that, that secure the carronades to the sides of the ship begin to snap off. And the carronades you know, slide across the deck as the oh British are trying God. to fight their ship. And it, it comes out in the court martial, which is the most astounding document I've ever read because the British captain essentially admits that, uh, well, the captain doesn't admit this. The captain says, you know, we, we did train with uh, the, the crew of the guns, you know, routinely every week or so. But then one of the lieutenants admits, we only actually fired one gun in practice ever once. Uh, it was always a pantomime drill, which wasn't uncommon in the Royal Navy. You would go for the motions of gunner drill because powder is expensive. You only get so much from the official source. But in her entire career under Captain Wales, they had fired one gun in practice. So especially after the ship had been underwater, they had no way of knowing that these, the, the ship was not actually in a fit state to fight. What is worse is that uh, Captain Wales and all her officers, her sailing master, the bosun, they all essentially throw the crew under the bus in the court-martial. They constantly complain that the crew is weak and unmotivated and badly trained or badly um, you know, unskillful at many of the guns and sailing, never sort of admitting the fact that as officers, it's their job to train the men. But that's their defense, is that we just had a terrible crew. They're pathetic. And that's why we lost. When in fact, it was an abysmal um, you know, approach of command of Captain Wales and his officers. That is staggering of, of many officer defenses that I've read. And you do come up with some absolutely crazy ones at times. The, it's not my fault that I didn't do my own job and train my crew properly and discipline them properly and motivate them properly is just a, a ballsy defense <laughs> to, to try and attempt to pull that off. Yeah, it's not my fault that I didn't do all of these things that I meant to do as an officer. Mm -hmm. um, that's staggering. But the sheer incompetence of my ship's been underwater. I'm not going to check that the equipment's got rusty. That's that's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, wow. <laughs> if people if this was going out on on YouTube, people would have seen me pull all kinds of faces over the course of that one. Um, <laughs> So psychologically, let's move away from incompetence now and think about kind of bigger impacts. Psychologically, this is, this is a kick in, in the, the nether regions for the Navy, right? Because <clears throat> we've, we've talked about this before, you know, the, the glory of Trafalgar humbled and humbled massively, you know, fledgling nation, not particularly widely, it's kind of heavily funded Navy uh, in the form of the, the US Navy compared to what the British are spending on, on their mm -hmm. Navy. Um, so how, how do they respond to what is basically a humiliating failure? And, and it's again, there, there's two, there are two lessons learned by two different groups of people. So I'll start with the, the Admiralty, the high command, the commanders in chief of the different um, uh, squadrons involved in the conflict. And their lesson is that these American heavy frigates, we were wrong, they're actually dangerous and we need to prevent this from happening again and orders are issued uh, in a piecemeal fashion and it, it, over the next few months and it builds up to the point where british captains are explicitly ordered not to engage those three american heavy frigates one-on-one -on -one. expressly ordered not to 
They don't order issue orders against um, sloops engaging enemy sloops or a British frigate engaging a you know, smaller American frigate. They don't really care about those so much, but it's swiftly those heavy American frigates, they say, not again. You can only engage them if you have a significant advantage over them. They also issue orders, um, what is more of a reminder to British captains that they're expected to properly drill and train their men. And they, they, they also require that um, a record of gunner drills is kept in the log. So they're beginning to become a little um, suspicious of British captains like whales who apparently aren't doing that. So that's a lesson that the Admiralty learns. And they, they take a lot of effort essentially to try to stop the problem, to avoid action with those three American heavy frigates. The serving officers on board the ships, the captains, the lieutenants, from the accounts I've been able to find, which, and there aren't many that survive, but of, of the accounts I have found, it's a consistently different lesson they're learning. And it, it, it's on the similar line of Captain Decretz. They reject the idea completely that these heavier frigates with their longer guns are any real threat. They continue to maintain that British seamanship should be able to defeat them, that all else being equal, a standard 18-pounder frigate should be able to handle a 24-pounder frigate. And to that end, British captains uh, begin defying orders, first by trying to seek out these actions. And there are some examples of actual direct challenges issued to American captains. And by disobeying orders to maintain blockades, for example. Um, now, this is shown um, both in some letters home and some uh, diaries kept by some officers serving, uh, and also by uh, the few accounts you can find in uh, newspapers written by British captains. Uh, there aren't many, but there are some, and they're consistent is the basic point I'm trying to get at. They're consistent in this fact. They might argue that having a larger crew is an advantage, but the lar uh, more guns and heavier guns is not an advantage. So the best example of how this worked in practice is Captain Philip Broke of HMS Shannon. Um, some readers might have heard of him. He's a, one of the more notable frigate captains. And he's notable, especially considering that he only actually fought one action in his life, or sort of one major action in his life. So he had been stationed in North America for a few years before the war breaks out, and he's had a very dull naval career. He's kind of fed up with it. He wants to go home. He wants to go back to his wife. But he doesn't want to do that until he's made a name for himself at sea. Once he's made a name for himself in his view, he's, he's won an action, he can retire with honor to home. So he spends the entire war essentially just complaining to his wife in his letters, I just wish someone would come and fight my ship. I just wish the French would come out, the Americans would come out. And through the course of 1812, he spends the entire process, again, searching out American ships, and he's unable to do so. He's unable to bring about an action. He's frustrated, he's angry, his friends have been defeated. He was a good friend of um, James DeCrez who had served under him for some time. And in 1813, he's ordered to begin blockading Boston, one of the primary American naval bases. And he's under the command of Thomas uh, Cappell, who was a, um, a lieutenant under uh, Nelson at the Nile and then a captain under him at Trafalgar. And they're ordered to blockade the port inside our two American ships ready for sea. Uh, President, one of the heavy frigates and a smaller frigate. So the blockading force is pretty large. You've got two ships of the line, two battleships, and a slew of frigates. And Broke comes up with this genius idea. 
he suggests to Capel to send the entire squadron away to Cape Sable, which is well over a day's sail under good conditions from Boston, uh, Cape Sable, Nova Scotia. It's pretty long distance. And he says, leave me and one ever frigate and we'll tempt the Americans out. We'll send reports home with fishermen into the port, inviting them to come out and fight. Because we don't want to be here for months. We want a victory. We want to avenge losses from the last year. And Capel says, yes. So he sails his squadron to Cape Sable and broke with Shannon and HMS uh, Tineos with them. They wait off Boston. They send fishermen inshore with the report saying, hey, the only two frigates here, come on out. We're waiting for you. And the Commodore Rogers, who's in command of president of the Ever Frigate, basically just says, I have, I have things to do. I have, I have a mission to accomplish. You just give me an opening because two ships are not enough to watch the whole swath of Boston Harbor. It's a massive harbor with a huge opening. So they just sail away. They wait for a patch of fog and they escape. And this causes a panic everywhere as word gets out. The Admiralty is panicking. They begin rerouting ships of a line to cover convoys that would have been guarded by just a single frigate before. Um, and they begin to ask questions and they, they begin pestering the North American Squadron's Commander-in-Chief, John Warren, why did this frigate get out? Why weren't you blockading Boston? And so John Warden, Warden, uh, Warren begins to ask Capel, why weren't you blockading Boston? That was what you were ordered to do. So Capel is then forced to go and try to pursue President. And he leaves Broke uh, with Shannon and Tenados off Boston to keep a watch, uh, watch in the port um, as the panic ensues. And about a month later, or half a month later, there is another American frigate, USS Chesapeake. This is a standard 38-gun American frigate, uh, basically identical to the British ones. And it's ready to sail now. And so Broke goes to his fellow captain and he says, okay, you're running low on supplies, go back to Halifax, resupply. I'm gonna send a direct letter to this guy and I'm gonna ask him to come out. This time it's gonna work. And it does because the American captain in question, uh, James Lawrence is also obsessed with winning the single ship action. Um, he had won one as a sloop captain, but in his view, didn't get the rewards he was, he was entitled to. So he's seeking a one-on-one fight with a British frigate. So he sails out to challenge Shannon and Shannon actually basically defeats her in about 11 minutes. Uh, so a very quick gunnery uh, in which um, Chesapeake, Chesapeake's rigging is damaged. Chesapeake is pulled into the wind. If any of your wrestlers are sailor will know that um, sailboats drift towards the wind. Once that happens, they're essentially trapped. They can't sail. So Chesapeake is damaged, pulled into the wind and drifts against uh, Shannon's side and Broke leads a boarding action. Uh, it was relatively unusual for captains to be boarding action themselves, but Broke was, um, he was unique. And again, just a few minutes, the ship is taken. Broke actually is grievously wounded uh, in the process. He's essentially delirious once the ship is struck. Uh, so it falls to the first lieutenant, um, who basically throws the American crew down below, secures the ship, and he goes to the stern to haul down the American flag. And he tries to rehoist it with the British flag on top of it, the sign of a prize. Unfortunately, in the, in the confusion, he mistakes the two flags because they're of the same colors. So he begins hoisting the American flag first, which is the incorrect thing to do. He realizes the mistake, begins to pull it back down. But someone on board Shannon, which is drifting off the side, sees an American flag go up the mizzen 
So he, they think, oh, they're retaking the ship. And so they open fire on the stern and the first lieutenant is killed instantly. Wow. Just how many, how many bulls ups can you possibly have in a, in a single story? These, these are incredible, um, which is why I've invited you on here because it's just such an education. So you've got this divide within the Royal Navy of the, it's all okay, we're still brilliant and the Admiralty going, and there's a problem here. This is how you solve it. No, seriously, this is how you solve it. Do what mm. we're telling you. And, and other, other officers going, no, I, I, I know far better than the, you know, these people in command who have all of this experience. Um, but what about the wider reaction? Because like we said at the start, the expectation is that the Royal Navy is going to walk over the US Navy, but the danger will come from the land invasion. So when things start to unfold badly at sea, how does that affect the population, both in Canada and back home? So um, essentially, it, it creates a crisis of identity, a uh, panic in Britain, in Nova Scotia, uh, to less extent in Canada itself, which at the time was just you know, Ontario and Quebec, Upper and Lower Canada, because they're being invaded. But the Royal Navy was a huge part of British and Nova Scotian identity, you know, them being the proud um, owners or uh, recipients, of the proper word would be, but of this, you know, world-beating supreme navy. And so the public are shocked, and they begin to look for places to lay blame. And very quickly, um, everyone from the newspapers to opposition MPs like uh, George Canning begin laying blame on the Admiralty and the government of the time. And they blame them for not preparing against um, you know, the heavy frigates of America, but they did not have the proper um, chips in place to deal with them. Uh, they blame them for not adequately supplying and strengthening the role of a North American squadron in the eventuality of the American war. So the public really blames the Admiralty squarely. And it causes anxiety because the, the naval prowess of the Royal Navy is a point of pride. Um, as a demonstration to that in Nova Scotia, um, Nova Scotians at the time were very proud of um, the rights they held as um, Englishmen, the British rights as British subjects, which included um, the rights not to be impressed if you were not liable to be impressed. But the British, of course, routinely pressed, you know, Haligonians as they impressed Englishmen and Scots and Irish. But even as that was a constant conflict in, North, in Nova Scotia, the American papers still spoke in glowing terms about every British Navy captain. So when those British Navy captains began losing battles, they begin to, um, well, at first they, they, they're very conscious because they don't want to discuss these defeats without knowing the story. The problem is that in, in Nova Scotia at the time, American reports reached them before any British reports, just based on pure proximity. So the Halifax papers at the start basically to say to our readers, hey, like, we know what you've heard about this battle off the coast of Boston or wherever. We don't know anything about it yet. We're going to wait till we have the British report before we start speculating. And that persists for the first year and a half. And then pretty quickly, it changes. And it begins speculating on essentially every little rumor that they hear imaginable. And they begin printing essentially wild conspiracies about um, American... Uh, 
know, ungentlemanly actions. They accuse them of lying about the relative strength of different frigates. Um, they reprint false reports that come from American papers, they say, showing that uh, the Americans are convinced Shannon was um, much weaker than she was, for example, um, or much stronger than she was. And essentially, as there are very few victories to speak of, they begin to Try, they begin to talk up their British naval heroes as gentlemen rather than as victorious officers. So they contrast them with the Americans by saying the Americans are ungentlemanly. Um, now in England, there are a few notable examples that I would like to mention. Um, one is the Duke of Wellington, who, or the then Lord Wellington, commanding the army in uh, Spain at the time. There's a letter that he writes in 1813 um, I don't know what the context of the letter would have been, but he does say in the letter that he thinks that um, the war in America should be ended as soon as possible, provided we can take, and I quote here, one of their damn frigates. So even Wellington is uh, opposed to the war, as most Britons are, but doesn't think that Britain can honorably make peace without taking one of those American heavy frigates. Interesting. I imagine Wellington would have been quite keen to uh, see the war end, not least because of the grain supplies and concerns mm -hmm. about, you know, what that was doing to the, his concerns of feeding the army, because Wellington did love to view everything through the prism of how do I win what I've got and, and deal with what I've got to deal with. Um, but interesting that it's we need to take one of these boats just to... Mm -hmm. Just so this is a point of um, reputation. We had to take one of them. Absolutely, that's a that's a driving obsession of the navy, certainly, but also of the public. They are endlessly waiting, speculating for one of those three heavy frigates to be taken. Chesapeake is taken, and the nation celebrates that, and they love that. And indeed, the historiography to this day in the British eye typically starts with the defeats and ends with Shannon Chesapeake, which is only halfway through the war. Um, and it's not until the end of the war that. Uh, one of the heavy frigates is actually taken. So what does the record look like by the end of this conflict then? You know, are the, the British able to just kind of massage their egos enough to, to deal with the fact that basically they get their asses handed to them? Mm -hmm. So in terms of record and a number of actions, um, the, the record is more American victories to British victories, certainly. Um, the, the heavy frigate actions of 1812, essentially there aren't any more of those. Um, one heavy frigate actually is successfully blockaded in New London and remains there for the entire war. Um, the blockading force in New London actually tries to engineer a, uh, a challenge, so a, basically an arranged fight, um, but it doesn't materialize because both of the commanding officers, both sides feel the stakes are too high. They, they do the responsible thing, whereas many other captains were doing the irresponsible thing. Um, USS President is taken uh, in the very last month of the war. It was just after peace had been signed, but before RAT was ratified. Um, and she was taken by HMS uh, Endymion, which is a British heavy frigate built as part of the arms race in the 1790s. One of the frigates of the Royal Navy kind of dismissed as too expensive to be useful, but rapidly brought back into use for the War of 1812, um, and, and, she is, and she takes president. And the British celebrate this, but it's, it's complex because president was running from a larger British squadron. 
And Endebian was essentially probably the fastest frigate in the Royal Navy, so she outpaced her companions. But President knew that if they were slowed down, they would be overwhelmed eventually by this British squadron. So they, they were really limited in what they could do. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a difficult victory to claim as a British, uh, even though Endebian did defeat President on her own terms. Um, and certainly the British went to great lengths to claim it as a victory. And in the early, you know, the, the years and months following, months and years following the war, it was kind of the end of the narrative. There the starts of these three defeats, uh, then Shannon Chesapeake reverses the tide and then President's boss finally seals the deal and proves that the British went on equal terms are better. That's the narrative that comes out of the war. Um, now the president and Endemion's fight has kind of disappeared from historiography. I think just because it happens just before Napoleon's return. So essentially as President Endemion sail to England victorious, Napoleon returns and the entire Navy's remobilized to deal with the French threat. So it kind of gets lost in the long term. But the problem with that British narrative is that there are still a slew of sloop actions that were relatively equal. Pervier is one example, and there are a few others where you just can't say that there's actually disparity in force between them. There's disparity in competence and training and qualifications amongst the officers. Um, so yeah, overall, the record is pretty poor for the Royal Navy in this conflict. They have a few really notable victories, and that's when really the, the best examples of training and seamanship uh, amongst their officers is demonstrated. Broke uh, drilled his men to perfection, Henry Hope, a commander of, uh, or the captain of President, or Endymion, drilled his men to perfection, modeled after Broke. But more of the actions were between ships where either the Americans vastly outgunned them or um, outwitted them in terms of just sheer professionalism and confidence. Let me finish by staying with what you've kind of talked about there about the historiography. Why do you think these engagements have largely been written out of the history books? If I mean, you talk about how if they are covered, then it's it's always kind of the Anglo-centric, almost sort of rural Britannia style of, of mm -hmm. writing history, right? Is it just the kind of the fact that it feels inconsistent with the legacy of Trafalgar? Or do you think there's more to it than that? So I think it's certainly partly that. So part of it is just it's it's hard to tell the story and explain it properly. Because in order for me to tell you about these you know, six sloop losses, just 10 years after Trafalgar, I have to explain that really what we're dealing with is like the worst of the Navy has. And that opens up a whole other can of worms because these um, defeated sloop captains, some were still employed after they lost. So they were, they were acquitted and given new commands. Most weren't, but some did. Um, which opened up the question, like, why wasn't the Navy properly punishing those who failed? Um, so it, it, does, it does complicate the narrative of the Napoleonic Force of the Royal Navy, which otherwise is, I mean, essentially superbly brilliant. And that's, that's the narrative. Um, it, it takes an entire book, as I've shown, to properly analyze that. And then there's still like, questions I don't have answers to. I don't know why the Royal Navy court martial system did not actually punish officers when they should have been punished. Um, Another problem, I think, is just that it's part of a historiological blind spot when it comes to colonial conflicts after the American Revolution in North America. Um, naval giants like NAM Roger, who is um, 
know, he's the, the definitive historian of this age on that period of naval history. And in his survey work, Command of the Ocean, which covers the whole period in incredible detail, I think he does about a page and a half, maybe even just a page on the War of 1812. And it's just really to say, um, American invasions were repulsed on land, we lost the three single ship actions, but they were uh, unfair and we won Shannon Chesapeake. And that's just part of a, a general trend in historiography again, to sort of ignore this period of colonial history. The War of 1812 is usually left out of most Napoleonic era um, content. So I'm very glad that you are covering it in your podcast because it's a very important um, part of the war. Certainly Wellington, as he had other things to worry about, was concerned about it, but it is usually left out. I think it's a consequence of those two things. It's funny, as you're saying that, I am acutely aware that this is the first time after uh, something like, in fact, this might be the 100th episode um, that we have looked at the War of 1812. And as you say, um, there, there isn't, there, there is material out there, but there isn't a huge focus on it. And I know uh, certain individuals are often kind of campaigning to, to get me to, to do more on the War of 1812. So I'm glad that we've discussed this today. And boy, have you given us an indication of why people should go and buy this book. So, Revenge in the Name of Honour, the Royal Navy's Quest for Vengeance in the Single Ship Actions of the War of 1812. It's available from Hellion. Folks, don't go buy it on Amazon. Go buy it, but don't go buy it on Amazon. Reason being, Amazon will take most of the profits and poor Nick won't see much. Hellion are lovely people, but if you buy through Amazon... The, the company doesn't get much to then be able to give the royalties on to Nick. So go buy it through Hellion. Um, I don't have the price to hand, but Hellion books are always very reasonably priced. It's in there from Reason to Revolution series. And Nick, thank you ever so much for joining us and just regaling us with the most incredible tales. I, I am now adamant that I need to go and read up more about this conflict because there are just so many screw ups and unexpected twists and turns in it that's it's it's really got me going on it so thank you so much i oh, know thank you and again i say nothing to educate more than getting to talk about something the british should more about canada before you go do me a favor like subscribe share and leave a review it'll cost a couple of seconds of your time but it makes a huge difference to the algorithms which push this podcast out around the world if you're interested in becoming a supporter, you've heard my spiel on this often enough in previous episodes, but essentially everything gets reinvested into growing the content from tech upgrades to new kit aimed at bringing you more variety to the show. There are perks for regular supporters. Check out the Patreon link for more on that. But if that's not for you and you want to leave a one-off tip, you can do that via Ko-fi. Each hour of podcasting has anything from four to six hours of time poured into it, so your support in whatever form it takes, financial or digital, is hugely appreciated. A particular thanks to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone and Zach Golby, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Mark Dewhurst, Jim Getz, Stephen Coulson, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Rory Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice DeGraff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, 
Alex Churchill and Rob Griffith. Join me in a few days when Naval Month will continue. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.